When you hear the word gentleness, maybe you think of that sweet little puppy that you bring home and you nuzzle up to your nose and and you love to hold your little puppy close to your chest. Maybe that's what you think of gentleness or you think of that school teacher who never seemed to get overly upset but always spoke in a calm, soothing voice and miraculously everybody in the room just responded how she wanted them to respond. Maybe it is the sweet hug from a grandparent, not too tight, but but just right as they bring you in close to show their love for you. Maybe it's an attitude of uh, too nice, being too gentle, where people walk over you and they always have their way when it comes between you and them because you're too gentle. So when we read this in the passage, gentleness, we can tend to think, okay, does this mean that as followers of Jesus Christ that we're just spiritual pushovers? That we really can't take a stand for very long because somebody's gonna come plow over us. Why? Because we have to be gentle. But when we take a look at the word itself, we see that this word gentleness, prautes in the Greek, means this, the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. I love that description of gentleness. It's not being a pushover, but it's not thinking more highly of yourselves than you ought to. And the greatest model that we have for this gentleness is Jesus Christ. When Jesus came and he lived on this earth, he came to be a servant among us. And as he came to serve, he did not see equality with God, whom he is, is to be something to be grasped. But he laid it aside and he came down to live as the God man. So was Jesus still God when he came here on this earth? Yes, indeed he was. And he was 100% man, which means all things that you face and all things that I face, Jesus has a great understanding of because he lived on this same earth, lived the 24-hour clock, seven days a week, dealt with people, relationships, conflict, and yet he was perfect. And he was gentle. We also see in this gentleness, humility, courtesy, considerateness, meekness in the older favorable sense. Because if I were to just start out by saying meekness, immediately we would jump to weakness. Anybody we know that is meek appears to be weak. Don't be meek. You're going to be a pushover. You're not going to be a good leader. You're not going to set a good example. Nobody's going to follow you. But Jesus came with great meekness, but he was no pushover. In fact, he didn't need anybody to push him over, but he came to lay down, lay down his life. And that is the strongest man who has ever lived among us, who would come and give his life, lay himself down for his sheep. And so here's one main question that I have, kind of two questions within one. But our main thought today, our main question that we are going to go after here together today is this. How did Jesus model gentleness to an unbelieving world? And how are we likewise to model this same gentleness? Now, as we have often done this summer, we will take 
this attribute and then we will go to another place in scripture so that we can just have a main text to go by. And, and if you're used to being here and you're used to hearing me preach, that's, that's where I'm comfortable. I, I, I like to take a passage and say, let's just go verse by verse. Let's break this down. What is God's word saying? And, and by the other fact, I'm just not good at the other style of, of preaching. Okay. So I admit that before you, I gladly admit that before you. And so with that, we're going to be looking in Matthew chapter nine. And so if you will, turning your Bibles there. If you do not have a Bible, if you do not own a Bible, if you will look in front of you, uh, there should be a pew Bible. If you will grab that one, I'll even tell you what page number we're on um, in just a moment, because I'm going to have to turn there. Hold on. Um, so in Matthew chapter nine, starting in verse nine, and we are going to be on page 814. 814. Matthew chapter nine, first gospel that we come to. And as we prepare to read this and we set our eyes on this passage, and so we will be so ingrained on it today, will you please stand with me as we read the word at this time? Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Thank you. You may have a seat. and May God add his blessings to the reading and studying of this word today. Just to, to give you a setting of this passage that we just read, Jesus previously had been with a gathering of people and they brought to him a paralytic and he was brought on a, on a stretcher type device and his friends were carrying him. They couldn't get to him uh, fast enough. So they began to uh, make a hole in the roof to lower this man down, as we see in the other synoptic gospels. And as they lowered him down, Jesus says, through this faith that I see right here, your sins are forgiven you. That was huge. Now think about this. The man was being lowered down because he could not walk. But the first thing that Jesus says is your sins are forgiven you. Maybe he was thinking in his mind that that's great that my sins are forgiven me. Yes, I, I would like my sins to be forgiven to me, but I would like to physically walk. But here's the, the truth in this, that yes, it would be a, a blessing to be able to walk and to go about the rest of his days with freedom of a body movement. But even if he could never walk another day in his life to be forgiven of his sins, he's set for life. He's good. But, but he didn't stop there because there were the scribes that were gathered around and they kind of just like to, they're like little gnats, like South Georgia gnats in, in the summer heat, all right? And they're, they're around Jesus and they're just as annoying as gnats would be all up in your ears and, and nostrils, okay? And so here they are and they're saying, how can you forgive sins? 
What authority do you have to forgive sins? And, and paraphrasing here, but Jesus says, oh, is this not enough for you? Okay, well, I will tell him just so you'll know that I have the power to forgive him of his sins. Get up and walk. And at that moment, he grabs his mat and he begins to walk. And everybody is amazed. In fact, the word that is used there is awestruck. They're awestruck of Jesus. If there's anything missing maybe today among us is that Maybe we're not awestruck of Jesus. But in this moment, they were awestruck. And what do people do when they're awestruck of Jesus? They follow him wherever he goes. And as Jesus is leaving this place, he comes across a man who is in a tax booth. Verse nine, again, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Now, the author of this book that we're preaching from this morning is Matthew. He's the author and he's the one telling the story. Now, notice we're in chapter nine, spend nine chapters getting into it before Matthew is mentioned. So here he is, he's sitting at his tax booth and Jesus walks by and says, come follow me. Really the only words we see are follow me. And he gets up and he follows. But who is this Matthew? Well, his name means the Lord gives. Here's what's interesting. In, in the book of Mark and in the book of Luke, when they tell of this account of Jesus coming past Matthew, the tax collector, they don't say Matthew, they say Levi. And that name is real familiar with the Levites. And so could it be that Matthew was not following in the role that he should have been in, in the priestly role, but instead he was a hated tax collector among his people. He's given a name change. Instead of Levi, it's Matthew. And this is kind of common in the Bible where Abram was changed to Abraham and Jacob was changed to Israel. Simon was changed to Peter, Saul to more commonly referred to as Paul. And here we have Levi to Matthew, the Lord gives. What did the Lord give him? The Lord gave Matthew a way out of his sin. He gave him a way. He gave him a hope. He gave him a purpose out of his sickness. He was healing him. And not only was Matthew under the reign of sin, but he was hated by his own people despised tax collectors were set up by Rome. They would set up these Jewish men to sit in these booths and they would collect taxes. Now, the right order of this would have been Rome first, then the Jewish governor had had little but hardly any power, but a lot of status. And then you had tax collectors and then you had the common people. And so the common people who were working hard were being taxed and the tax collector was taking that money then giving it to the governor and then most importantly to Rome. But you know how this transaction would take place. If he has power, he's going to take more than what's owed to him. In fact, when G John the Baptist is waiting for the Messiah to come and he's baptizing people and the Pharisees show up and he says, you brood of vipers, who told you about this faith and repentance? In the same time that that's mentioned, you have these tax collectors come up and, and, and John the Baptist tells them, hey, as you're baptized here, when you leave, quit taking more than what you're owed. So we know that they were dishonest men. And this was Matthew sitting in his tax booth, hated by the citizens, viewed as an extortioner, 
And he was the object of bitter hatred. So he didn't have very many friends, only the ones who were in the same business as him. And his character was always in question. He could never be trusted. Isn't that a frustrating situation when somebody doesn't trust you and you're being honest? But Matthew had to pin it back on himself. He had been dishonest so many times that people just couldn't trust his character. It doesn't matter how much you possess and gain if people around you don't trust you. Don't think that you're a good person, a wholesome person, one that can be looked on in a time of need. He didn't have people there for him, but he had his power in his tax booth. These tax collectors were traitors. They were thieves. They were liars. And Jesus looks to this tax collector and says, yep, you're exactly what I'm looking for. Yeah, you will do. You come on with me. What is with this lineup of disciples? Have you caught on to this as you read the word? Why is he choosing fishermen? Why is he choosing a tax collector that is hated? I mean, why from day one of his ministry, after coming out of the waters of baptism, going into the wilderness and then getting back, why didn't he go to the synagogue and say, hey guys, I need your 12 best men. Give me your 12 absolute best men who have good reputation, well thought of in the community, who know the word. I need those guys to come and follow me. Why didn't he choose the 12 best? It's a good question, isn't it? It's something to really ponder, something for us to ponder when we think about us being in Christ. Why us? Was it because there was something of an advantage for Jesus calling us and making us his very own? Did we add something to him that was lacking? And of course, we know the answer to that, and that's no. But see, Jesus didn't choose 12 of the finest scholars available because Jesus doesn't need our scholarly opinions to affirm his lordship. In fact, he avoided the religiously elite crowd and went straight for the lowly. That should be most encouraging to us today as sinners who have been made right before God through the blood of Jesus Christ. We were lowly. We had no hope. There was nothing good and religious about us that was pleasing before our Father. And Jesus came to us. Christian, I hope you hear that today and you go, that's me. I'm the lowly. And the lowly were well suited as any to be disciples because no one makes a good discipleship candidate based on his own status or merit. Don't let anybody fool you into thinking that their reason for being a Christian is anything of themselves. So God's grace was poured out upon these disciples through the gentleness of Jesus as he accepted them into the fold. John 15 verse 6 Jesus tells his disciples, just in case they have forgotten along the way, because you can imagine if you were in the company of Jesus and he's healing people and he's casting out demons and huge crowds are following and you're changing bread into more bread and a few fish into lots of fish that you can begin to think more highly of yourselves than you ought to. And he reminds them in John 15, verse six, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. So what is the command? He says to you lowly, I chose you. Why? So that you could go bear the fruit. This work that I've been doing, you're going to continue to do it. He says to them, you did not come looking for me. 
It was I who came looking for you. Oftentimes you'll hear people saying, I found Jesus or I found God. I heard somebody say that just recently. I found God in my life. And I'm going, wow, you, you, you kind of explain it as if God was the one searching and lost and didn't know where to go. No, brother and sister of the faith, he found you. He captured you with his grace. And he comes to Matthew and he says, follow me. And Matthew simply states that he rose and, and followed him. We see this here before us that following Jesus meant Matthew had to leave his tax booth behind. And that's important that we don't overlook this in the text today because this was his throne of success. Sure, this was his place where he reigned. He made the rules. He determined what was just and unjust. When he spoke, people had to listen. People hated passing by this booth. People hated lining up at this booth because they knew they weren't going to be treated fairly, but it didn't matter because he was benefiting from all of them. He was like a small little king in a small little booth. And Jesus says, come follow me. Leave that booth behind. What's your booth? What's your booth in life? Where do you sit and reign on this earth? Where is that spot for you? Where is that place? Is it at work? I mean, when you're at work, do you feel like you are the man and all look to you and you're like a small little God in that place? Or is it in a home? Do you lead your home that way? Do you rule in the home that way where everybody just looks to you as the savior of that home? Is it something in the community that you're a part of or is it your glory days and ball that you just haven't put behind yet? Hmm, I don't know. What is it? Where's your throne? For Matthew, it was this tax booth and on his throne, he dictated what is just and unjust. On his throne, he was free to devise wicked schemes to gain more money. On his throne, he possessed a sense of power and authority. And he left his position of power and authority behind and he left behind his crooked ways of cheating and hurting others for dishonest profit. Matthew 16, 26, he would later write, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return of his soul? Although he was inspired by the Holy Spirit when he wrote these things, it makes you wonder, are these things that Matthew pondered in his own heart as he left his tax booth? What would it profit me to go back to that tax booth and to gain much things from the world, many things from the world, and yet forfeit my soul? How foolish would it have been to say, Jesus, hold on. I want to take my tax booth with me. Let me just kind of strap it onto my shoulders here and I'm going to follow at a distance, but I'm coming because any free time we have, man, I'm going to settle this thing back down and I'm going to make a little spending cash for us. Okay, Jesus, is that okay? No, that was not okay. And it's the same way in our lives. When we are called to follow Jesus, we die to all authority and power that we possess or that we think we possess. And we, we, then we submit to the full authority of Jesus Christ. And this is Matthew. And you say, I thought we were talking about gentleness. How, how are we seeing gentleness? We'll get there. We're going to answer the question, but it's all being set up right here as Jesus is preparing to go to the house of Matthew. But we must speak of the Pharisees in verse 10. 
And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, first off, if Jesus wanted to, he could have immediately named out every sin of each of the Pharisees hanging outside the house that evening. He could have. He could have paused the situation and said, hold on, I get what's in your heart. I hear what's in your conversation. Hey, you, hey, yeah, you, you Pharisee, you, you step forward. I'm going to name out all your sins. And he could have, in that very moment, called out everything that that man in a religious robe had ever done to offend a holy God. And they would have been there upon days, upon days, upon days. And he said, hey, next man up, it's your turn. He could have done that. No, he doesn't. In fact, he is sitting in the middle of tax collectors and sinners. He's not at the doorway. He goes fully inside. Now, this can make us a little uncomfortable in our day and time. Okay, And as if I could just say collectively, as as Southern Baptists, a passage like this can make us very uncomfortable because I'm going to just relate to where Jesus would have been today if he would have done this. It wouldn't have been at Applebee's, okay? You're thinking, oh, maybe Applebee's. They got a little bar there, you know. It's a bar, it's a neighborhood bar. It's not really a bar, it's kind of a bar. I kind of eat there, it's not supposed to eat there. I don't know. Maybe you wrestle with that, whatever. We're not talking about Applebee's. No, 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 no. We're talking about downtown Rimmerton, all right? Big life, going to the bars, going right in there and sitting right in the midst of everything going on. You say, whoa, 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 Jesus wouldn't go into a place like that. Sure he would. You know why I know that? You know why you should know that? Because he came and lived on earth. The very moment that you think that Jesus wouldn't walk in to a bar and sit down with people and discuss their true need for him and to reveal their sickness due to their sin, and we look at that and we think, no, 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 no. Those type people, mm-mm, Jesus wouldn't do that. We don't dare go there. We don't do those things. Before you get there, you better recognize that you are the Pharisee standing at the doorway. Going, why would Jesus do that? Why would he ever do that? Now, here's the other side of this argument, because I hear this from time to time. People say, well, Jesus went to the bars. He sure did. He saved people. What are you doing at the bars? Okay. If you're going to go do ministry, do ministry for the glory of God, not the glory of yourself. Don't use the the great miraculous work of Jesus Christ to compensate for where you're falling short and want to fall short. You get that? Do you understand that? There's a balance here when we're talking about gentleness is doing that right thing. And Jesus sits right in the middle of this home of hated, despised people. And who hated them the most? The religious people. Here, Jesus is ministering to them. He's not there to approve of their behavior. He knows that they're sick. And that's why he's there. And they are all there because of him. How does this minister to us today, church, when we want to grow as a local body of believers? but yet we are unwilling to go where the non-believers live. How does that minister to us? How does that speak to us today? Because I'm wrestling with that in the text. I must tell you, I'm wrestling with it. 
Where do we go to reach the lost who don't know Jesus, the sick and dying in their sins? If all we ever know about Christianity is within these walls, and that's how we relate Christianity. That's not gentleness. That's not a gentle behavior. That's not penetrating the culture. But here Jesus comes and sits right in the middle of them in verse 12. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Now, this is one of those texts that can be really difficult in understanding. And so let's break it down for a moment. Those who are well, this word well means to have strength, ability and power, both physical and moral. So if, if you have the flu and you are zapped of your energy, all you want to do is sleep in your comfy bed and just slurp on your chicken noodle soup, right? That's all you care to do in that moment until you're made better, until you gain your strength and then you're ready to go until you're made well. But is, is that what Jesus is saying here, that some people are already well when he comes onto the scene? Like, meaning that some people are righteous, some people don't need Jesus. Like, he didn't come for him because he's coming and saying, hey, you're okay. Like, we've, we have been talking about you in eternity, and you are amazing. Your works are just fabulous. Will you just keep on going with that? I didn't really come for you, but these guys over here, these are the ones I came for. Will you help me pray for them? Okay, I'm gonna go to them. No, that's not the case. So what is it? Well, what we see is there are plenty, as there are plenty today, who had convinced themselves from their own depraved minds that they were well, that they have no need of a doctor. But the secret's out. Maybe that's you today. Maybe, maybe you're here. And I'm just going to tell you, the secret is out about you. If you think that you're well and that you have no need for Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross, here's the secret that is out among everyone as the word goes forth. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Romans 3, 10, there's none who are righteous. No, not one, including you in this room. If you feel like you are good enough to stand before God. And if we did a survey today, I wonder how many people would agree to this if I said salvation is your good works outweighing your bad works. And maybe you would, you would say, uh, true. That, yeah, that's true because that's how you live your life. Maybe that's what's been taught to you. And in fact, that's naturally ingrained within you. One day I sat down with a young man in my office and I said, listen, let's talk about your life. And I said, Here's the deal. Are you good? Are you good? And do you know this young man, 19 years of age, he looked back at me and he says, not only am I good, I'm very good. And I said, wow, will you tell me all about it? And he began to tell me why he was very good. And then we went to the scriptures and we read for all of sin to fall short of the glory of God and that no, you are not good. You have offended a holy God. You are wretched. And when we got there, he didn't really like hearing that. I mean, somebody who says they're very good in the same conversation doesn't want to hear that they're wretched sinners. But as he heard that conversation over, in fact, he said, okay, are we, are we pretty much done now? We're pretty much done. And maybe that's where you want to go right now when you hear that you don't measure up but we're just like the tax collectors. 
Here we are sitting in the living room and Jesus coming to us and saying, you're sick. You need to be made well. There's no one who is truly made well in and of himself, but the most dangerous place that you can find yourself is convincing yourself that you are well without Jesus. And so Jesus is saying, I'm coming for these who are going to follow. When we attempt to live our lives apart from Christ, we are saying, I have the power. Maybe that phrase right there really resonates to you 80s children in the house. I have the power. Remember He-Man? Yeah. Okay. Nice, long, blonde mullet hair with a little underwear holding up the sword. Okay. Yeah. You're saying, I remember that guy. I have the power. That's how we live our lives. I have the power. We stand there and we think everybody's amazing. I have the power. I can live this life on my own. I can do this. But indeed, apart from Christ, we are under the power and dominion of sin. And no, you cannot do what is holy and honorable before God in and of yourself. Even those, most especially those who appear to be outwardly religious. If this is true, and it is, then the life apart from Christ is anything but gentle. Anything but gentle. The sinner does not live a life of humility, no matter how outwardly religious he or she appears to be. The more appropriate word would be this, restless, restless. Are you restless today where you're seated? As you hear this today, are you confident that you have a right relationship with Jesus Christ? The Pharisees thought that they were in a good position until they met Jesus. Their heart was restless. It was hostile. They were on a restless pursuit to discredit the saving work of Jesus Christ. They were guilty of countless attempts of telling Jesus how he should be Jesus. Man, I'm guilty of that. I think I've told Jesus once or twice or many times before how he should be Jesus, how he should be working through me or how he should handle certain situations in my life when I neglect to go to his word to discover who Jesus is. And they were guilty many times of saying, no, Jesus, that's not how you should be Jesus. That's not the Messiah that we are waiting on. And while convincing themselves that they had no need for Jesus or for his forgiveness of sin, they denied the Savior. The Pharisee viewed sinners as, uh, in a bracket of tax collectors and Gentiles. Those were the sinners. And so while carrying the title of Pharisee, one would not dare associate himself with a sinner. So you see the conflict that is here. You see why they're not entering into the party. They're not interested in what Jesus has to say to the tax collectors just for the reason that he's saying anything at all to tax collectors. You're not even supposed to speak to them. You're supposed to leave them alone. Is that how we treat the world around us, Perimeter Road Baptist Church? Is that how we see our community? People who are lost in their sins, and we're just supposed to stay away from them because they got something we don't want to catch. They're never going to know about Jesus until we get out there and tell them. And Jesus comes to those who are sick. Anyone who comes to Jesus must confess, I am sick. I am sick of being a sinner. If you're here today and you're saying, how can I be saved? Here's how you can be saved. Come to Jesus. Call upon Jesus. And, and all you must say, something around this is that I am a sinner. 
I am sick in my sin. I deserve hell. I am separated from a holy God. All this, I deserve to be punished forever. Forgive me of my sickness. Forgive me of my sins. And you say, oh, but you don't know the things I've done. And you know what? It's a good chance you're right on that unless you put it on Facebook lately. I don't know. I don't know what you've done, but he knows everything you've done. and He knew it before you ever did it. So if that's what's holding you back, know that he's always known these things. Go before him and tell him that I am like the tax collector. I am a traitor. I have betrayed you. You created you. You created me. You made me. You fashioned me. And I have had nothing to do with you while I've lived on this earth up until now. I am such a traitor to my creator. I am a a thief, just like the tax collectors, taking things that aren't mine. All the glory that should be given to your name, all the goodness that's done in my life, I should be giving you credit for that. I should be praising you for that. But I've been stealing it. I've been hoarding it in my heart and making it my very own. I am a thief and I am a liar, convincing people that I am better than what I really am. That's what we as sinners say when we come and repent. And trust in Jesus. You see, these tax collectors lacked any good standard for living. The lines were always blurry. They were redrawing the lines and they'd rub that one out and then they'd make a new line and then they'd stamp that one out and then they'd make a new line of what was right. And is this not the exact imprint of who we are as sinners? Always making an exception for the way we live our lives and The things we can do are okay, but somebody else can't do the very same behavior that we have done or are doing or will do. Jesus comes to those who are sick to make them well so that they can live by his standard of righteousness. Verse 13, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus looks to the Pharisees and maybe that morning, picture this, maybe that morning a Pharisee was sitting with a few of his pupils who follow him and say, teach me, teach me, teach me. I want to know more. I want to know more. And then he gives them a little Bible quiz from the Old Testament because that's all they had back then. And so he gives them this quiz and, and then they don't know the answer. And he says, go and learn what this means and come back to me. That was a common phrase among Pharisees. Go and learn what this means, and then you come back to me. You tell me what it is, and I'll tell you if you're right. And Jesus looks to the Pharisees, who are very used to this phrase, and he says, hey, go, learn what this means. Because you're lacking in the knowledge. You're lacking in the understanding. How many times have the Pharisees used these same words with their pupils, and now they are the ones being told, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So, but hold on, wasn't a sacrifice required in order for one to be saved? Yes, the great sacrifice, Jesus Christ. But to offer up sacrifices and say, I've done my duty, I'm good now. I'm gonna go about my normal week, I'm good. I've done all the religious activity. The rites and the rituals are complete. No, that is our mercy, compassion. How do we relate to this today? Because we don't actually give animal sacrifices. In fact, that's been done away with, so there's no need to do that, Christian, just in case you were pondering that in your heart. But here's the deal. How do we go about 
these sacrifices that we offer up and lack in mercy. Here's how we do it. When you walk out today and you go, whew, all right, done with church. Now it's time for the week. You know what I'm saying? Did that. I even went to community group this morning at nine o'clock, finished it, done. In the mornings, you read your Bible. Ha, read my Bible, done with that. Now I can go about my day. And you're taking the things of God and yet although you're practicing them, you're separating them from the rest of your life. It's I do the godly things here and then I do my life the rest of the day. When it's the things of God that should be interwoven all throughout your day, all throughout your life. That's how we do it. And that's how the Pharisees were used to doing it. They would hold people to a higher standard than they held themselves. And so this sacrifice would be a ritual. It would, being a child of God is not about performing rituals, enabling you the right to enter God's presence. In fact, when a Pharisee would pray, Jesus called this out. He says, I'm thankful that I'm not like the tax collector. I'm sure glad I'm not like him. Have you gone in prayer and prayed with that type of heart? Hey, I know what I did was wrong, but you know what? I didn't do what my wife did the other day. Or I'm I'm not like my friends over here. You know, I'm I'm a little bit better than they are. Is that how we're praying with that type of attitude that we're, we're bad, but we're not really bad? Like we sin, but we don't really, I mean, these aren't like major sins. That was the heart of the Pharisee. But when you understand mercy, this compassion that he shows towards you, you go to him and you take serious all of your sin, even the sin that you don't know that you're committing Brother Hal McGregor and I, we were joining a cup of coffee this past week, and, and he was sharing something with me I thought was very profound. It was a scholar of the past who said this statement. I'm going to get it as close as I can. I should have wrote it down, but here it is. He says, even the most godly prayer from the most godly man on earth, even that prayer has enough sin in it to condemn him to hell for all eternity. Get it pretty close? That's it. You think about when you pray, you think about what's going on in your heart, things that you're wrestling with. And Jesus knows this. He knows that we're sick and that he is the one to heal us. And so he comes to us. And in this text, we see the humility of Christ and learn that all who follow him must have humility, a gentleness, If we agree that this is the gospel, and indeed it is, then there is a gentleness created within us when we are born again into Christ Jesus. You're saying, I want this gentleness. I want humility. But I often struggle to think of myself more highly than I ought to. It's okay. You go to the Lord in prayer. The Spirit lives within you, follower of Christ, and you have this attribute of gentleness. Remember, we've said it throughout the summer. You don't just have a few of the attributes and the others are beyond your grasp. No, these aren't spiritual gifts that we're talking about. We're talking about attributes of the Spirit who lives within you. All nine of these, you have these within you already. Ask God to stir this gentleness and humility in your heart. So how did Jesus model gentleness to an unbelieving world? And how are we likewise to model this same gentleness? And here it is. Jesus went to the sick and provided them a remedy and that being himself. 
How did he show gentleness? He didn't come down here and condemn us all to hell. He didn't come destroying everyone as we deserve. He offered a remedy for this rebellious nature of ours. And so how are we to follow likewise, likewise to model this same gentleness? We take Jesus to those who are sick and dying in their sins. With what type of behavior? With meekness. That's within this gentleness. How are you to go and penetrate the culture? With meekness. Meekness, but not in a man's outward behavior only, nor in his relations to his fellow man or his mere natural disposition. Rather, it is an inwrought grace of the soul. And the expressions of it are primarily towards God. It is that attitude of spirit we accept God's dealings with us as good and do not dispute or resist. According to Aristotle, it is the middle standing between two extremes. Getting angry without reason. Anybody been guilty of that lately? And not getting angry at all. Pretty frustrating as well. Therefore, this word means getting angry at the right time, in the right measure, and for the right reason. We hate the things that God hates. We love the things that God loves. We deal gently with people. It all comes together. But when we hear meekness, we're going to be tempted to think that we're weak and we're pushovers. That is not a follower of Christ. You are not to be pushed over, but you are to go to them. You are to speak to them. You are to pray for them. And you are to understand why the world doesn't love Jesus. Because the world has always hated Jesus. But that did not stop Jesus from coming to the world. That's gentleness. That's gentleness. First Peter 3.15 but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. I just want to speak a moment here in closing of how we deal with the lost. I don't think it is right for the church to make fun of the lost, to make jokes about the lost, to mock the lost, we are to go and minister to the lost. We are to weep over the lost. I don't know what it is that I can cry at sports films, but I find it hard to weep over the lost. You may cry over those adoption videos for pets. And that may get your heart. The other day, my son wanted to rise up and go save all the pets after he saw that. I get that. But will he get the gospel? And will it so impact his heart that he wants to go out into all the world so that people may hear and believe? May I get the gospel so that I will go so that whoever will hear and believe will be saved. So that you, as you hear the gospel and this gentleness, as we prayed, God having in his hand and he could just 
crush us right then and be done with us. But no, he holds us secure because he loves us. Do you get this? And does this drive you to reach the law so that they too can be saved? John Calvin, a great reformer, said this back in the day. He says, for he that has learned to look to God in everything he does is at the same time diverted from all vain thoughts. So I believe the reason that we don't take sinners seriously, and when I mean sinners, I mean we are sinners still. We still sin, but our hope is in a Savior. Our salvation is in a Savior. But going to sinners, the reason that we don't take that seriously is because we just think of ourselves too much. You want to know one that's just neatly packaged underneath there, all fleshly driven that you may not recognize? It's this. What are they going to say to me? What are they going to think about me? How is this going to change my what? Life. You see, we think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. We're thinking about our own lives before we think about the lives of those who are dying and going to hell. This is a reality that we all struggle with we all get comfortable with, we all have seasons, but what I hope after we hear this today is that we are so moved in our hearts with this gentleness of Jesus showing such gentleness to us that we show this gentleness to the world. Like the Pharisees, we are consumed with vain thoughts, thinking of ourselves more highly than we should, possessing a hostile nature towards sinners or possessing a hostile nature towards God. All of these we deal with, even as followers of Christ. But as you walk away from this place today, may it remain fresh on your hearts that Jesus came to the world that hated him. Will you go to the world that hates Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. And as we reflect upon your gentleness and how you have been so loving towards us, and it is your truth that we not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, that we lay aside ourselves and we walk in Christ Jesus, Lord. With this gentleness, it, Father, I believe we can't hear this and just do nothing about it. There are people all around us and even those in this room. Lord, I know in a room this size, there are those who do not know Jesus. Father, today may they hear and believe and follow you. May there be true repentance. There's no place I would rather be than in your hand. Thank you for your mercy. For not bawling up your hand and crushing me. May this melt my heart, which grows so hard towards those who are lost in their sins that I want to have nothing to do with them because I'm, I'm busy with so many other things, Lord. May this truth today melt our hearts and lead us to go and share this good news and penetrate this culture. 
with the good news of Jesus Christ. Work in our hearts, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.